0: Distributed stream processing allows developers to build applications on top of large sets of data that are being rapidly created. Stream processing is often described as an alternative to batch processing. In batch processing, a single large computation is performed over a large static dataset. In stream processing, a computation is performed repeatedly and continuously over a dataset that is being appended to. A distributed stream is often stored in a distributed queue such as Kafka, Kinesis, Pulsar, or Google PubSub. A stream is often processed with a stream processing tool such as Spark, Flink, Storm, or Google Cloud Dataflow. Holden Karau is an engineer who works on open source projects at Google. She returns to the show to describe the state of stream processing and to discuss modern best practices for stream processing. Before every show, we often mention some goings-on in Software Engineering Daily. I'm just going to start mentioning this as recent updates so that this space in the episode gets condensed more. We have a lot of updates that are happening in our ecosystem, and and you can always find these updates in a given episode. So today, our recent updates are that the... The new version of Software Daily has recently come out. This is our app and ad-free subscription service. We've built out the new version of softwaredaily.com, which is a nice UI, much nicer UI than we had before, and a lot of, a lot of kind of new little finishing touches that are that are make software daily a little bit nicer to use. So I hope you like that. We are looking for help with Android engineering, QA, machine learning, and more. You can find those kind of open roles on FindCollabs, and again, the link is in this episode. And the FindCollabs $5,000 hackathon ends Saturday, April 15th, 2019, so there's still a week to get in your interesting, or a little bit of time, not quite a week, to get in your interesting projects and uh, and to hack on some stuff. It's definitely not a finished race quite yet. So again, all those links are in this episode and I hope you enjoyed today's show with Holden. Holden Corral, you are an open source big data engineer. You're currently at Google. Welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks. I want to start by just Giving some historical context, because we're at Strata, and I think of this as kind of a historical event. It happens every year. It's the data conference. Describe
1: the evolution of streaming data since the world of Hadoop began. So I think when, when Hadoop first started, streaming was very much an afterthought, if, if it was thought of at all, right? You, you look at the early big data tools and they are all purely batch focused. Like MapReduce has no concept of, of really processing streaming data, right? Um, and we we started to see specialized streaming tools become introduced with things like SAMHSA and Storm. So we got very specialized tools to handle just our streaming use case. And that's good. It's, you know, It gave us something to work with. But that was really frustrating because for a lot of people, what they wanted to do with streaming data, they wanted to do really similar things with their batch data as well. And so they ended up having to rewrite their code to be able to compute the same thing on different pieces of data. And that's That's kind of a waste. And so we saw the introduction of design patterns to sort of simplify that so that you could follow a common pattern and reuse much of, if not all, of your code. So that was a very important step. And then the parts that we started to see afterwards is we started to see the batch systems add streaming support and the streaming systems add batch support. And that was just the realization that, like, realistically, people don't want to write their code twice. Um, It's just, it's not are very reasonable thing to ask people to do. It's a lot of work. And when you ask people to do that, they make mistakes. And those mistakes are so difficult to find and so difficult to debug that you really want a unified system. And so SAMHSA has batch support now. Spark has streaming support now. And we're we're sort of at the point where we're seeing things more commonly offer a unified system because that's what people expect and need.
0: When I look at these different streaming frameworks, I've always had trouble distinguishing what the trade offs they're making are i'm not sure what the best analogy is but would you say a fair analogy to the to the range of streaming frameworks is is like the range of programming languages because there's so many different programming languages all of them make different trade offs there's subjective
1: differences is that a fair analogy i think that's not wrong i think that's that's pretty accurate and in in some special ways it actually has some extra layers to it that we can think of right for example if we if we think of the c programming language right uh, the trade offs that we get with c are actually different depending on which compilers we choose and actually so for systems like spark while we don't have different compilers that we choose uh, we can choose different streaming runtimes for spark Uh, and for systems like apache beam that's also even more true right we we write the same code we get one set of general trade-offs and then we get to fine-tune our specific trade-offs based on which execution environment we enable and so I, I think programming languages is a pretty good comparison. Um and in, in some ways the cost of switching programming languages is pretty similar to the cost of switching those frameworks around. It is it is really painful to do. <laughs> have you done that? I've done have, migration. Oh god. I've I've done I've done migrations. I will do them for money. I will do a lot of things for money. System migrations is one of those things that yes, I will do for enough money. Or, you know, a green card. You know, one of the two. Right to get into some more history, there was
0: this period of time where the Lambda architecture was a big point of discussion, which, as I recall, the the Lambda architecture is this idea that you have a slow leg of data and a fast leg of data. Why did we have that and how did we move beyond it?
1: Well, I think in some ways we actually really haven't moved beyond it completely. Um, We've just made it so that you don't have to consciously think about it as much. So, I mean, we got that because realistically people didn't want to write their code multiple times. And you have this idea where I have this this common transformation that I want to apply to my fast data that's coming in. But then I've also got this this slow previous historical data that I want to apply the same transformations on top of. But, you know, the characteristics of processing that data is very different. And I think we have the same thing today. It's just now we are using the same system to do both, and so we don't give it a special name anymore. Um, some people may disagree with me that's that's a matter of personal opinion um and if you disagree with me that's that's perfectly all right. you know I'm not not strongly bought into that, but that's that's where I'm at
0: so now that you're at Google, you probably have gotten some interesting historical context as to how things looked within Google around the time that, you know, the open source community was sort of dealing with these problems, probably like five to 10 years after Google had dealt with them.
1: Totally. Actually, maybe I didn't mention this the last time we talked, but I left Google to go join the open source oh, that's community. That's true.
0: That's true. You had been at Google before that.
1: Yeah. I left to go solve the same problems. <laughs> Again, and now i'm back at Google solving the same problems again in open source so google's solutions are are very great there there's there's nothing particularly wrong with them. But I think that we've learned a lot in the meantime, even though we are perhaps solving problems that Google has solved before internally uh, in open source. The structure of Google's data centers and the the characteristics of that is different than that of uh, standard commodity hardware that you're going to get. And so some of the solutions and techniques that you know Google uses internally, it doesn't make sense to just port those into open source. We actually need to sit down and reevaluate the design choices as we're going forward. And and I mean this this shows in Apache Beam, right? It it's taken a lot of time to to even though it's from Google, right? Catch up to some of the same features that are in Google's own internal systems because it's not just a matter of, you know, copying it over and tweaking a few things. It's a matter of fundamentally having a different core architecture that we're building on top of
0: it's interesting seeing the the contrast in the Google open source communities like Apache Beam, Tensorflow, Kubernetes. Yeah. there's a really, different community developments across those different projects. What do you think drives that?
1: Totally. So one of the things is there's different foundations behind those projects and foundations to a degree, they provide sort of a general framework that you work within, right? So Apache beam is part of the Apache software foundation, uh, which is actually just celebrating its 20th anniversary this year. And, The Apache Software Foundation is very flexible, but it it still has some general guiding principles. And that's sort of shaped the Apache Beam community in some important ways. I think Kubernetes definitely has CNCF, and that's that's very different in terms of their history and where the CNCF comes from, and their view as the right way to do open source. And I don't think anyone's right or wrong. I think it's all just different approaches of getting to the same place. Uh, It's about finding ways to collaborate. And I think... One of the challenges for for a company like Google is when you you take things that have been developed for a long time internally, and then you turn them into open source projects, one of the big challenges is getting the engineers who have been working on the problem before to sort of change their habits, right? Because they're good engineers. But now... They need to remember to work with the community so that the community can become involved. And that's not necessarily a thing that they have as much experience doing. And so there's, there's sort of a transition period as these projects move from being internal projects to open source community projects that people are a part of. And I think the level of support provided by the foundations there is really important. What's the significance of the Google Dataflow paper? It has a lot of significance. It's changed, I think, how people architect systems. I think it it certainly spurred a lot of innovation in open source. Of course, I'm biased. I work at Google, so I, I think that the things that we've done are are very good and useful. Um, I think it's it's a very common pattern where you see Google releasing very high-quality papers describing our systems and then seeing the open-source world re-implement them. I think one of the things which which we've done differently this time is releasing Apache Beam not at the same time, but in the same sort of general larger time window uh, so that people can see some of our ideas of how we think implementations like this can be built. And I think doing that together, um, like not at the same time, but broadly together with the release of the paper has certainly helped it have a larger impact than it could have otherwise. Mm.
0: When the Dataflow paper came out, you were working on Spark, right? I was, You were yes. focused on Spark. What takeaways from the paper did you have around that time? Was there anything in it that was like mind-blowing to you that changed
1: your perspective on Spark? So not really. So the the problem for me is I just left Google. And so it was like, cool, here's a paper about the things that uh, I already knew about. Um, And that was really good because it meant I could talk with people about those things and they weren't secret anymore. Um, And I think that was was useful. Um, I think realistically, though, a lot of my focus at that time was on trying to come up with better support uh, for multi-language pipelines. And so the Dataflow paper really didn't have a lot of impact on that. I think the people who probably felt the most impact of seeing the Dataflow people were uh, Tageth TD, and uh, some of the Flink team who were more more focused on building a unified uh, batch streaming system at that time uh, than I was.
0: Give an example of a common streaming data problem that you see in typical organizations.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I think probably the most common streaming data problem that I see is just ETL, but ETL is boring. So let's talk about streaming the streaming machine learning predictions because that's that's more fun and, and cooler. Actually, let, we can talk about streaming machine learning training because that's even cooler. I don't see it as often as the streaming predictions. You know, so in practice, ETL, predictions, and then training at the mm-hmm. bottom in terms of frequency but i think it's it's a really cool thing and it's going to be really challenging for us to do right um, i've talked with people who have different approaches to how they want to do online updating of their models you know you need a parameter server so you can have your parameter somewhere but one of the challenges is with like Traditional machine learning, we have this idea that, like, I train a new model and then I A B test it, I compare it, I can, like, yeah, okay, my new model is good, it's better. Um, But if I'm doing online streaming updates, it's a lot harder to pick the time when I want to cut over to my new model. And it's also harder if I'm always automatically using my latest model, I can have drift happen much rapid, much more rapidly than I'm, I'm used to, and I can get into a really bad state really quickly. Um, and so I see a lot of people uh, exploring different solutions to that. Um, some people uh, who are training more classical linear regression type algorithms have sort of bounds which their parameters are allowed to play in from the last batch train. Um, so they only allow so much change to happen during streaming with the idea that like, yeah, today is a little different than yesterday and we should take that into account, but today is probably not drastically different than yesterday. And if it is, we probably want to get a human operator involved. And so I think it's a it's a really interesting problem that people are, are working on right now.
0: Can you talk about it more architecturally? Like if if I'm implementing a system for streaming machine learning training, online learning, what are the different components that are going to be going into this thing? What's the, you know, the perhaps data
1: lake, the, the queuing system, the machine learning frameworks, streaming systems? What do I need? Totally. So you're going you're gonna to need some streaming data. A lot of times that's coming in on Kafka. Kafka is very, very solid at this point. It's so a, it's maybe a very production data choice. is
0: being written to a Kafka queue. I'm yeah. reading from it via a stream.
1: Yep. Yeah. I'm, I'm picking it up via stream. I'm picking it up in Spark or Flink or Beam, my streaming platform of choice. I'm applying some kind of data cleaning on top of it because all data is garbage. And I'm throwing away some of it because some data is really, truly very, just very bad garbage. Uh, and so I'm trying to get rid of the the truly egregious uh, ones. And I, I try and do that as quickly as I can. And then I get into the place where I'm now going to try and actually train my machine learning model. And so I have a often a distinct process, um, not always. Uh, in, in some places, I see it where the driver program for your uh, traditional distributed computing thing also serves as the parameter server. Um, and so I have some idea, I have some collection of weights or parameters that I'm, I'm going to be fitting for my model. And so I, I have my previous good weights. Those are probably from a batch train on my data lake uh, when, I'm, when I'm starting my stream. And then I'm going to update those weights as the new data is coming in. And each of the workers is going to compute some loss function, and I'm gonna use the results of that to, to update the weights. Often you see the parameter server distinct from the driver because if you put it on the driver, that is a lot of coordination work to be happening on the driver, which is already sort of a natural choke point. So you really, I think putting it there is often a thing which people do for like a V1 to get it out the door, but then end up having to refactor it into a separate parameter server that's able to get the updates separately and distinctly from, from the regular driver. And then your parameter server might do a few different things. It might just periodically write the new model out into a you know, GCS or S3 or HDFS bucket, or it may actually produce another stream. You may produce a Kafka stream of your new models um, that are then picked up downstream by, by serving components to do actual predictions. I've seen both architectures. And I think they're both fine. I think I think the Kafka stream one is definitely feels more like a streaming system, and that's something that people care about. Personally, I tend to be of the opinion that if you're not okay waiting, you know, for one minute for a new model, uh, you probably need to hire some very specialized engineers, anyways. And these off-the-shelf components probably aren't for you. But that's the personal opinion there. And then yeah, so you'll you'll have some set of new models, and then they're going to get picked up by whatever you're using to do your predictions. Sometimes you're going to do your predictions also on another Kafka stream. That's a very nice, easy situation, and I think that's one of the situations where we see the models coming out to the, the Kafka stream as really making sense because we see the, uh, the predictors are already you know, Kafka clients anyways. In other situations, we have things where we don't want the latency of, of putting Kafka in the middle, we're, we're serving requests on the hot path to a client. And so then we have you know, traditional API servers with a REST or, or other interface that are then being hit to, to serve my model. I think in those cases, you more commonly see people use traditional distributed file system or object store to to put their updated model into because you don't want to have every one of those be a Kafka client necessarily.
0: These days, is it any harder to develop
1: streaming machine learning applications than batch Oh, God, yes. Yes, yes. Don't worry. Everything is still terrible. (laughs) Well, we've solved some of the problems, but most of them are still there. So... There's a lot of really lovely tools to make your batch machine learning easier and uh, there are not really the same tools for for online. Data validation is really hard to do when you've got streaming ingest data because a lot of the data validation tools are about what the distribution of your data looks like and uh, computing those distributions in small windows leads to false positives and negatives at, at an unacceptably high rate. And so you have um, you have a lot of Challenges around how to do data validation, uh, which is a key part of machine learning, in my opinion. If you if you don't have a good data validation, you might as well just return a random number. And so I think that's there. Um, Also, realistically, the scope of algorithms which are supported for online learning are smaller than the algorithms that are supported for batch learning. Often, that's okay, right? But that's the thing which may or may not limit your use case, right? You may not find the right models that you want out-of-the-box support online learning, and having to write that yourself is going to be a lot of work. At the very least, you, you'll have like a, a guide because other models support online learning, but adding adding support for online learning to an existing batch algorithm is not trivial. That is a substantial engineering and possibly research task.
0: And the, the point about the algorithms that you made, I guess that's because a lot of these algorithms that are like implemented in what the Python libraries or whatever, it's like they're built to process all the examples. They're not built to process all the examples. And then one more example.
1: Yes, they they do not have the idea of, and just one more, as as fun as that is. And so it's it's difficult because they they use very good optimization algorithms, but these same optimization algorithms do not work as well when you only have partial views of the data at a time. So you have to pick different approaches to optimizing your data. You can't do the same iterative algorithms that you're used to doing. What
0: is Apache Beam? I know you've answered that question a number of times. I've asked that question a number of times. I'm still a little confused, but please tell me.
1: So there are a lot of different ways of thinking about Apache Beam. One of it ways that you can think about it as a translation layer. That's a limited way of thinking about it. Another way is to think of it as more like a compiler, except it doesn't really quite work like a compiler because it doesn't produce a new thing. Um, Rather, it ships a runtime and, and a bunch of other things. So thinking of it as somewhere between a new interpreter and a compiler and a translation layer, and thinking of it as a weird hybrid of all of those things, somehow working on data is is the way that I would say is the the fast approach to thinking about it. It's challenging, though, because Apache Beam is also changing a lot. There's some very interesting new features around multi-language pipelines in in Apache Beam, which is pretty cool. Traditionally, Apache Beam really had only first-class support for Java and JVM languages, and then added second-class support for Python is, is often the way. But now it has a more general approach, which allows for things like Go to be uh, written as Beam pipelines. And that's pretty cool. And this is actually one of the situations where we see the open-source world got there first, and then uh, you know, the the Google Apache Beam, which is also open-source, but I guess really what I meant to say, the, the world outside of Google got there first, and then Google was able to learn from some of those experiences uh, and come back with a different solution for, for handling uh, non-JVM languages for big data.
0: But so going back to the the streaming machine learning application, how would we potentially use Apache Beam in that application? Where would it fit in?
1: Totally. So we could use Apache Beam in a few different ways. Uh, one of the things is there's like a suite of TensorFlow tools that, that run on top of Apache Beam, and we could try and use some of those tools with some streaming data a lot of those tools are designed more to work with batch data so we'd have to do a little bit of refactoring probably to to succeed we'd use apache beam most likely to do our etl do our data cleaning and then get our data over into something like a distributed tensorflow job to update for for these new records and that's not perfect yet but it's it's getting a lot better and that's that's where beam would fit into the to the picture
0: so beam actually is a streaming framework it can be used as like a streaming framework or is it or if you are running a beam job is it necessarily being turned into like a spark job or
1: a beam itself does not have its own distributed data processing runner right. um, and so if you are running a beam job by its nature it's getting transformed into a SAMSA job or a flink job or a spark job or a Dataflow job um and in some of those back ends uh you can use your beam job as a streaming job so i could definitely use apache beam for that streaming data um in some of those back ends it doesn't currently support streaming so apache beam on spark it's not a thing that you would do for streaming data Um, that would not be a great success um that may change by the time this podcast gets published who knows so, so why is that well that's a good question. And the true answer to that probably involves a bottle of scotch to get the answer out of me. But the short version is essentially that support for the different backends uh, are developed independently. And so there hasn't been as much motivation to work on the Beam Spark Runner as there has been to work on, for example, the Beam Flink Runner. And so the variety of features uh, available on the Beam Spark Runner are not as broad
0: but let's say like we built our streaming machine learning system we used flink is there a reason to re-implement it in beam
1: in my opinion no I'm sure if you ask someone who works on the Beam project more actively than I do, they, they may give you a different answer. But if you already have code that works on Flink, there's no particular reason to switch it to another system, I think. Um, and the same is true, like if I built a streaming machine learning system on Spark, if it's working for me, oh, dear God, don't just rewrite it because it's new. That's that's such a waste of time. Working code is worth its weight in MacBooks.
0: Yeah. So, but if I re-implemented it from Flink to Apache Beam, what I might get is like forward compatibility, right? Like if somebody came out with a new streaming framework and it solves my problem better, I can magically have the Apache Beam code that I have now be automatically swapped over to that other runtime.
1: Yeah, that is definitely a possibility. I am suspicious of that possibility because the new magical streaming framework will probably not have Beam support for a while, right? We don't see Beam as something that is a must have feature for new. Processing frameworks in the data space—it's um, often added later on, but certainly you know it, it could make my code have a longer shelf life, and that can that can certainly be important, um, especially you know if you're the kind of person who gets stuck maintaining legacy systems, could be a way out of having to maintain quite as many legacy systems.
0: Is the motivation for Beam to provide people a way to run their streaming jobs on? Google Dataflow without
1: being locked into the APIs of Google Dataflow? That's certainly a large part of the motivation, right? Google Dataflow is an amazing product, but realistically, a lot of people do not want to be locked in. And so offering the ability to move to Apache Flink if, if Dataflow becomes too expensive or, or not for you is, is certainly a, a very important motivation of the Apache Beam development work, I think certainly not the only reason, but I think that's that's a non-trivial portion of why that development occurs. What would be some
0: other reasons?
1: Well, so I think if we think back to your question about that machine learning pipeline that you said we wrote in Flink, and then if we wanted to move it uh, to Beam. I don't think that's really the use case that Beam is is going after. But if I'm writing something and I'm not sure where I want it to land, I think using Beam from the start makes sense, right? I, I think doing rewrites to Beam is probably overkill, just as I think doing rewrites to Spark is probably overkill. But I think if I start out in the Beam land, I get this flexibility at not that high a cost to me, right? It's not the cost of having to rewrite my things. And I think Beam just provides that that level of flexibility to people.
0: So you focused on Spark even since, since joining Google. How has the Spark ecosystem evolved in the last year?
1: Yeah, um, so, I mean, Spark had the 2.4 release. It's added support for Kubernetes, um, and that's been really key to driving Spark, I think. We're starting to work on Spark 3, which is really exciting. Uh, We're starting to get rid of our old deprecated APIs. Unfortunately, it looks like I will not succeed in my quest to get rid of Python 2 support, but I think soon we will we've seen a multitude of streaming options in Spark. And this is not that it's going to use like a non-Spark streaming things, it's just Spark streaming now supports many different kinds of execution. Um, And so for example, if I don't care about my data all that much, but I really, really care about getting most of my data processed really, really quickly. That's now one of the trade-offs that I can select in Spark streaming. Um, and there's there's other options sort of depending on where you want to sit in the streaming uh, reliability performance trade-offs. And, and that's pretty cool that it's now inside of one system, as opposed to necessarily having to change between systems to get a different set of streaming trade-offs.
0: What are some Patterns for how Spark fits into a machine learning developer's workflow?
1: So there's the classic one where I ETL my data in Spark, I write it out, and then I pick it up in a machine learning tool. It's not a bad one, to be honest. One of the things which has happened in the new versions of Spark is this thing called the gang scheduler. And this is designed to allow Spark to be more cooperative with uh, traditional machine learning tools like TensorFlow so that what you can do is you can do your data preparation in Spark and then actually fire up TensorFlow or whatever deep learning or or machine learning tool you want to use and then have that pick up the data directly from Spark, be scheduled and controlled by Spark and, and produce the result and then go back to Spark's traditional scheduler afterwards. And I think that one, that's not a common pattern that people use today, but I think that's going to be a more common pattern as the bugs in that new scheduler get ironed out. Uh, new software always takes a little bit of time to catch on, and and for good reasons. And I think that's a pretty common pattern. Um, there's another one where Spark itself has its own machine learning libraries inside of it. You do see people use those. I think that's going to happen less. I think we see Spark moving in the direction of allowing you to plug in the specific machine learning tools that you want, and just giving you a way to get your data ready to use with those machine learning tools, and giving you a way to use those machine learning tools in a distributed nature. And I think that's going to be sort of the future usage patterns that we see around Spark and machine learning.
0: So do you mostly think of Spark as this way to materialize large data sets? into memory and then just perform operations
1: on those in-memory data sets? I think for machine learning, that's not a bad way of thinking about it. For ETL, it's a little different. Um, but I think for machine learning, realistically, that's kind of Spark's sweet spot, right? It's it's really good at getting the data together. But realistically, there are not like a large group of machine learning engineers working on Spark's core machine learning. Instead, what we see is we see the machine learning engineers working on core abstractions in Spark, and so then different people can implement these abstractions, and, and we see this with people from all sorts of different companies working on those abstractions, uh, and I'm not going to mention them by name because I will forget someone and they'll get angry with me, but I think that's, that's a really important thing because then it means that you're not like, locked into just one set of machine learning tools. What are some common mistakes that people make writing Spark applications? Oh, so many, so many. Um, There's the classic where people call group by key because it sounds like it's gonna group your data together by key, and the problem is it does that, and then your job fails. Because your data, when grouped by key, it turns out that a lot of humans live in New York and all computers live in this place called null, and then your data just, just gets very weirdly shaped and your job fails. I think more broadly, though, these problems come from people not understanding the shape of their data. And that's completely reasonable, right? We don't normally have to think about the shape of our data as much when we're writing local non-distributed applications. But I think really broadly, the the problem facing most Spark developers is not having a good grasp of of how their data looks, what the distribution of their keys and values look like.
0: How does Spark relate to TensorFlow? TensorFlow.
1: That's a good question. So you can use Spark to get data ready to use with TensorFlow. You can use TensorFlow on data from Spark with TensorFlow on Spark, uh, which is by the Yahoo folks, I believe, and all sorts of different libraries by different people. And that's, that's probably the closest way that I think Spark relates with TensorFlow.
0: How does the MLlib set of tools within Spark compare to what kinds of
1: machine learning you'd be doing with TensorFlow. They're very different. Spark's machine learning tools are very much classical machine learning tools. There is, of course, neural networks and and things like this, but they're not really fleshed out to the same degree as TensorFlow. You know, and that's, that is what it is. Uh, I think Spark's machine learning realistically just isn't developed as aggressively as, as TensorFlow is. There are a lot of people working on TensorFlow uh, versus the number of people working on Spark machine learning. And so I, I don't think we're going to see uh, Spark ML becoming competitive there. I think we'll, we'll see, um, as I was saying, common APIs or, or, or systems like that um, become the way that people from Spark access machine learning tools like TensorFlow.
0: What areas of the Spark open source project have you contributed
1: to? Sure. That's that's a great question. I think I have contributed to technically every area except for graphing, I want to say. I've definitely contributed to core, machine learning, Python. I have contributed to R very, very tiny, very tiny. I don't actually know R, so it, it took me a long time. And let's see here. So you've seen the whole project. I have. It's a fun project. Um, I mean, I've worked on it for longer than I thought I was ever going to work on any tool. Why is that? I like open source, and Spark is open source that people are willing to pay me to work on. Uh, So that's that's worked out pretty well for me, I think. But you could work on
0: Kafka, you could
1: go to... I could, actually. And occasionally I talk to people about roles working on on things like Kafka. You know, that that would be cool, too. Honestly, actually, I think one of my goals for the next five years is to make sure that I don't just become the spark lady. Because I think if I keep going down the path I am, I'm going to just end up the spark lady. Not a bad place to be. Oh, no, certainly not. I I think that's a perfectly reasonable thing to be. But I think knowing myself, I'd get bored uh, doing that. And so I want to preempt my boredom and, and find a solution.
0: Okay. Well, on that note, we've been focusing on streaming, but the entirety of the data platform world is expansive. And you've got your data warehouse, your data queue, your data lake, all these different areas, a multitude of databases. How does the streaming platform relate to the multitude of other aspects of the data
1: platform? Totally. That's a, it's a, it's kind really of a good that's question. That's kind of a vague, vague. question. Yeah. but, but I mean, Explore I it how you will. So streaming tends to relate to these things as, um, at, at its start, if we if we look at an organization which is just adding streaming support, it normally comes in the form of ingestion, right? That's That's where streaming often first makes its presence felt, right, is getting my data ingested because I have real-time or like real-time data being produced that I want to ingest into something like HDFS or my traditional data lake. And then from there, once we start to see that, we start to get people who ask for near real-time results, right? And that's that's the next place where it sort of starts to play a role, is empowering people to get answers instead of having to wait long periods of time for the data to hit disk and then be re-exported in the correct formats and so on. And so I think realistically, streaming represents both ingestion into traditional ETL jobs, but also uh, it is answering business questions that we just didn't have before and allowing us to take uh, action faster, right? Like, Previously, right, if I did my fraud analytics in a MapReduce job, I might not notice fraud before I already shipped out the packages, right? But with streaming, I can I can take these same things and, and answer those questions sooner. I still use my traditional ETL uh, and MapReduce or Spark jobs to train my models, and and I think online learning is is definitely a thing where we'll see people using updated models in in closer to real time but I still think we're going to see people training traditional models in in batch and then uh, iteratively updating them. So I think streaming very much builds on top of the existing ecosystem that's there. It doesn't replace it or supplant it. There are certainly people who just let their data live in Kafka and it, they don't persist it somewhere else, but that's definitely not a thing that you see very often, and that only really makes sense in, in corner case use cases, in my opinion. Now, of course, the, the Kafka folks may... Give you a different answer than that. You think they they
0: envision Kafka as a data lake?
1: Certainly some of the talks that I've seen from some of the Kafka people definitely seem like that's where they think Kafka will sit eventually is that it will represent both the fresh and the aggregate data. I mean, sure, it's possible. Um, I think realistically, though, there's a lot of tooling that exists that's going to be really hard for us to rewrite to get that same sort of support on top of just Kafka data. And I mean, that, that might happen, but I don't see the motivation to it. I don't see what it gets us. And, you know, I mean, people are willing to do small projects for fun. But I think, for example, rewriting Impala to work on top of Kafka, that sounds like a lot of work for i don't know what gain and i don't i don't really see something like that happening of course you know knowing my luck there's a good chance that someone's done that um but you know it's it's a question of what do we gain by having all of our data live in kafka i mean certainly you know less things to manage but sometimes a unified system is not the best. Sometimes there are unique things about different kinds of data that we want to keep distinct and separate.
0: It, it could be entirely plausible that this stuff ends up composing together to feel more like an operating system. Like I feel like today it's almost like from what I from talking to people operating your quote-unquote data platform is like operating the different apps on your smartphone. Right, you're like, go to yeah. the queue. Now I go to the HDFS. Now I go to the streaming framework. But when you're operating with like an Apple laptop, you don't know where your L1 cache is, you don't know where your L2 cache is. These are not apps on your desktop.
1: It's true. I think, yeah, certainly, I think that we will see these become more composable in the Unix style philosophy as time goes composable
0: on. Composable and like abstracted away.
1: Yeah. Which, honestly, as a Spark developer, is like a thing which is a double-edged sword. There may come a day uh, when uh, people don't think about Spark, right? They just think about the higher-level things that are built on top of it. And by that point, I should find myself another job.
0: <laughs> <laughs> on that note, like, you have these companies, many of them are at Strata, that are offering a highly integrated uh, data, quote-unquote, data platform, yeah. right? Why is there not like an open source, slightly opinionated, data platform that if I'm a big insurance company, I can like just like get this bucket of of open source technologies? Here's my data lake. Here's my data. Here's my streaming system. Here's my data warehouse. I get all these, and it's like a data platform that collects all of them, but it's all open source instead of like a, a repurposing for proprietary right. purposes.
1: So I think, I think there's a few different reasons and we do see some pure open source things like Ambari. I think it's Ambari. I, I might be wrong about the name. We, we do see some open source things like that, that give, give us that, but They're not represented here because they don't have uh, the same commercial backing and the same money. But realistically, I think a lot of those platforms are sold with the promise of support, right? What you're buying is the promise that there is someone who understands the different components of that platform at that vendor, who when things go wrong... Yeah, it might take you a little while, but you can get an answer. And the thing with the open source tools is like, yeah, there's no promise that anyone's going to ever answer you, right? Like, that's just what it is. Also, it's just not nearly as cool work to do, right? I think a lot of open source work it falls into two buckets. It's either cool and people are doing it for fun, or it's being done to serve a larger commercial purpose and then people are being paid to do it. And so I think you see a lot of people working on the individual tools from the different vendors, but their special value add is is on top of that. And so you're not going to see people uh, paid to cannibalize the vendor's profit centers in open source. And so it's it's uncool work that no one really wants to pay for right now, I think, is the problem. And this this may change, right? The It may make sense at some point for someone who wishes to disrupt the market or whatever, phrase we're using these days uh to make really good open source platform that has everything together and then you know uh, vendors will have to find a new way to sell support contracts and call it software revenue yeah why are jupyter notebooks becoming so popular ah that's a lovely question so i think notebooks are a really amazing way of doing data exploration and i think a large part of this comes from things like data science boot camps um that have really changed the tools that people are learning. And notebooks give you an accessible interface to to do your data science in. And I think very importantly, they're not scary, right? A lot of the other tools that we see can feel intimidating if it's your first time using them or you don't come from a traditional software engineering background. But Jupyter notebooks do an excellent job of being accessible to a wide range of people. And then um, there's this thing where when you do your exploratory work in something, the idea of redoing it somewhere else to put it into production, eh, it's a bit of a tough sell. And so we're seeing Jupyter Notebooks move up the stack in that same way.
0: To wrap up, what are the other themes you're seeing here at Strata?
1: That's a, it's a good question. So to be honest... My Strata has been a bit hectic, so I haven't had as much chance to hang out in the hallway as I hoped I would. But I think Apache Arrow is a really big thing that I hear people talking about a lot. Um, and that's a common format that allows different programming languages and tools in different languages to cooperate together in a more efficient manner. And I think that's probably the one of the bigger trends that I see happening here at Strata. Uh, realistically, I spent uh, most of the rest of my time here trying to get my kubeflow workshop working and so i heard a lot about kubeflow but i was working on a kubeflow workshop so i probably should have heard a lot about kubeflow and i always hear a lot about spark but i take that with a grain of salt because if people like spark they come and talk to me sort of regardless of where i am in the world What's the significance of the Kubeflow project? Oh, so Kubeflow is really cool. Actually, I should have answered that for your data platform question. Okay.
0: I, I did a show on it. I've done a show on Kubeflow, but I want your perspective on it.
1: Sure. So I think Kubeflow is is really interesting. It gives you a collection of tools that you can use together in an open source way. Oh, I guess uh, on that is the Kubernetes. open source data platform. Perhaps. It could be. It's not there yet. Not there yet. Right? Like right now, for example, Kubeflow doesn't have really any good answer to where to store your data. That's just like pick something else and connect it to (laughs) Kubeflow, right? And so Kubeflow has the potential to develop into something like that. Time will tell if it does or not. Uh, But Kubeflow is really good for doing machine learning on on Kubernetes and making sure that the pipelines that you build uh, locally on your laptop while you're doing your exploration will be able to scale and work in production. And it also makes it a lot easier to collaborate with folks because you're not in the situation of having to manually manage dependencies. Things are explicitly stated. You're not having to go track down, you know, your good friend Joe who wrote something with some random version that you can't find and he didn't bother to to mention in a requirements.txt. Yeah, it's always Joe's fault, always. It helps that I don't work with anyone named Joe, I think. I don't know. If I do, I'm sorry, Joe, but it's your fault. Holden Corral. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Wow.